بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَأَنْتُمُ الْأَعْلَوْنَ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اسْتَعِينُوا بِالصَّبْرِ وَالصَّلَاةِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَ الصَّابِرِينَ O people who believe, seek assistance from Allah, seek assistance in Allah. By prayer or through prayer and through patience. Through patience gives us a very interesting understanding here that we need patience to bear calamities. We need patience to withstand difficulties. But that's not the only patience, that's not the only meaning of patience in the Sharia. The common understanding of patience is when you have a calamity or a difficulty, a musibah, some problem, then you have to with, with, withstand it. You have to be patient and endure it. That's generally the understanding of patience that people have. However, the other meaning of patience which we probably exercise much more often are the two other types of patience because there are three types of patience. One is patience uh, when you have a difficulty. The second type of patience is to do good deeds, to fulfill the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You need patience to do that. For example, one of the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to pray. You need to have patience against everything else that our nafs would more like to do. And then instead of that, we pray. So we exercise patience of avoiding those other things and we pray. We fast. We avoid. Fasting is all patience. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves the patient ones. Give glad tidings to the, the ones who are patient. And fasting is one of the biggest worships of patience because from dawn to sunset you stay away from three things. That's all about patience. Patient means to endure, to let the situation that's there overcome itself, but us, where we are trying to endure it. And the third type of patience which we do a lot of the time, again as Muslims, is that we avoid sins. Avoiding sins is a patience. So in Arabic that's called Sabr anil ma'siyah Which means patience from disobedience Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us you can't do this that and the other your friends want to do so your colleagues want to do so It's a easy deal. You'll make more money if you take that job You'll make more money if you start selling that thing It's easy money, but we're saying no, I'm gonna be patient. I'm gonna wait for something better that's why generally if there's a person who has some trouble in finding satisfaction in the halal and constantly the nafs is encouraging him towards the haram. For example, a person has a, a spouse, married, but our eyes still looking at other things, trying to be entertained by others, maybe leading to flirtation and so on. And we're not satisfied with what we have. We're not satisfied with what we have. So there's a very wonderful dua. Allahumma kfini bi halalika an haramik wa aghnini bi fadlika amman siwak. 
Now this dua is very interesting because it wasn't reported about this issue. This dua is generally, to, uh, generally mentioned for repayment of debt. That if a person has debt, then read this dua. And when I used to when I used to read this du'a, when I used to look at this du'a, I used to think that it's so, such a general du'a. What it means is, Allahumma kfini bi halalika an haramik, oh Allah, suffice me. Make it sufficient for me. Satisfy me with your halal away from your haram. I will be satisfied with the halal that I don't need to go to the haram. I will be satisfied with the business that I have so I don't have to do the haram business. There's a lot of opportunity get rich quick schemes sometimes it's easier to make money in haram ways than it is to make money in halal ways at least that's what they promise you to do in the beginning though there's no blessing in that money though you may have a lot but there's no blessing in that money it doesn't last too long Allah give me sufficiency in the spouse I have so I don't have to look at other spouses and the dua works because look this world is full of new things this world is full of different things. This world is full of variety. And even if I have the best of something, I have the best jacket, I have the best car. I mean, what do you mean by best anyway? That doesn't even make sense. What do you mean by that I've got the best car? You see these little children, they say, oh, that's the best car. Right? They don't even own it. They've, they've, just seen a, they've just seen a Corvette. They say, that's the best car. Like, what do you mean it's the best car? What do you mean that that's the best car? How is it the best car? Just somebody told you it's the best car. Oh, Manchester United is the best team. Like, why is that the best team? Right? What makes it the best team? When you've got a when you've got when you've got a team, just think about this. I've been thinking about this for a while. When you've got a team, for example, let's just say you supported Liverpool, right, or whatever, since the last thirty years. At that time, why did you start supporting that team? Ask yourself. You live nowhere close to it. The players that maybe you initially supported it for are all long gone. It's a totally different team. Sometimes, if you're supporting Liverpool and you're from Liverpool, I can even understand that. I can even understand that. If you're not even from there, most of the players are probably not from there. Why are you supporting that team? Why is that so special now? Why don't you change? Why is it not possible to change? Think about it. If you're supporting the same team for 30 years, despite whether they were winners or losers, they had their ups and their downs, why do you support that team for? When they've gone through so much change, just think about it for a while. What makes you support them? What is it? So if I used to support Liverpool 30 years ago, why would I want to still support it today? What is it that makes me support it? What made me initially support it? So what do you mean by something is the best? This is, there needs to be a lot of psychology that needs to be researched into why we do certain things. And when you start thinking about it correctly, that what is intrinsically in that thing, substance, that makes me want it or desire it, and we try to figure that out, that's when we'll understand what the reality of this life is and whether what we're doing we should be doing or not <coughs> so when I hear the children you know they have card games with, with different cars and okay that's the best that's the best I'm like it's not even the best for you 
I, I hear these kids, they're talking about Manchester City or whatever. I said, you've never even been there in your life. Why would you say it's the best team? Why is Barcelona the best time when you've never even been there? If those players of Barcelona even saw you, they wouldn't even recognize you, they wouldn't even say hello to you. Probably not. Why? Why? What's overtaken us? The only thing we should be supporting is anything that we can see clear benefit coming from. So this dua is really wonderful. Oh Allah, suffice me with the good away from the evil and make me independent of anything besides you. I don't want to be a follower, especially for those things which are bad, which are not useful, which are not beneficial. I want to be independent in my thinking. This will really help us to understand culture and not follow culture. Culture is very powerful. So steadfastness in a time when we have so many things that is competing for our, our minds, our brains, our money, our everything. Before they just wanted something from you. Now they want you to be fully everything. They want you to think in a particular way. They want you to dress in a particular way. They want you to speak in a particular way. It's a very powerful, very powerful culture that, that uh, we, we, we are dealing with today. Today it's very powerful. It's around us. You can't avoid it. So let us talk about a few different things today. Just to get us to think about these things. The question that arises generally that they keep putting out there which causes a lot of confusion to people, is that, is Islam still relevant today? How many of you have heard that question being asked? Is Islam still relevant? Nobody. Looks like only one person here, and two, three, four, five. Oh, they're all slowly waking up. Inshallah. That's right. How many of you have heard this, this idea that, uh, is Islam still relevant today? So this is an th important question that we need to answer. The reason why it's important to answer is because people bring it up all the time. The media, this is the constant bombardment of the media today, is that Islam is no longer relevant. They may not even say it in those words. But what's happening to a lot of people, especially people who generally don't come to the masjid, and even some people who come to the masjid, is that if you're not already so engaged with your faith, and then you keep hearing that this has been done in the name of Islam, and that has been done in the name of Islam, and this crime has been committed, and those people have been murdered and th that incident, terrorist incident has taken place in the name of Islam then slowly, slowly your, your association with this thing that you maybe have been brought up with and born with suddenly starts to weaken for example, everybody's proud of their family at least they generally start off being proud with their family let's just say that in every one of our families there's somebody who's done something strange or the other something wrong maybe right? we all have some black sheep in the family now, if somebody tells you that, you know, your family or your people, they, he start, that person starts criticizing them. Initially, you're going to defend yourself. You're going to defend yourself and you're going to say, no, it's the best. My, 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 my family isn't like that. My family is very good because it's yours. But slowly, slowly, they start to highlight problems within your family. They start focusing on them. They start magnifying them. Slowly, slowly, you will also start understanding. You'll convince yourself that, yes, I've got problems as well. That's what they've done with Islam. That's what's happening with Islam in the media. And this is not just we're making this up. Studies show that, that the link between Islam and violence, Islam and backwardness, Islam and 
um, backward culture, Islam and murder, Islam and terrorism, the links that have been mentioned in the uh, in in uh, in news in news media, it's much more than the link between any two other words, any any other religion, in many words. That's why it gets people to think that Muslims are the greatest terrorists. Now, if you look at it, if you just look at America over the last two years, how many shootings have taken place? I mean, you get one every few months. How many of them were Muslims? There are so many, but when it's not a Muslim one, you'll hear about it for maybe two days, maybe a third day. And then after that, it'll be finished. They may then talk about it after a week or two weeks and they'll just kind of round it off and then it's all done and dusted. But when it's a Muslim incident, then the amount of analysis, the entire newspaper, entire website is full, filled with this. Analysis, various different experts are brought in and it's just such a hoo-ha as though it's the most unusual thing that has to happen. It's the most unusual thing that has happened. And we must talk about it because it's the first time it's ever happened. It's bad whenever it happens. But the kind of focus, it really brings it to the forefront. So now when you're listening to this and you... And if we have not experienced Islam ourselves, then why should we want to stay Muslim? Why should a person care anymore? That's why the majority of people who leave the faith or who no longer want to be part of the faith rather, they're not atheists. I believe more of them have a problem called apathy and indifference. They don't care anymore. There's very few people that actually become an atheist and outright deny God. Others, it's just much easier to just not care and just to forget and just to disregard that I don't care whether there's a God or not. Oh, maybe there could be a God. Maybe there is a God, but doesn't, it's not relevant to me. I've never experienced a God. I just, I just got a question, it was just last week, that in the prayer, I, I don't feel anything. So why should I pray? Right? I'm not feeling anything, so why should I pray? Now I can understand that if you don't feel anything, then it's a good question, why should you pray? But the point is that we should be feeling something. Right? We should try to feel something. There's measurements to take to feel something. If a person hasn't experienced their faith and they've just taken it because it's their father's religion, their mother's religion, their family religion, or because they've been intellectually convinced, intellectually convinced with intellectual arguments, that is not as strong as when you've actually experienced it yourself. If in the dark nights you've been able to sit down and do some tahaj, stand up and do some tahajjud prayer, and make some dua to Allah in those times of loneliness when you've been sad or when you've been broken hearted and you've sat down and you've been comforted by the Quran and it's done something for you then believe me that will not be shaken by anybody because now that faith has become mine it's done something for me it's no longer just something I claim to profess it's not just something that I profess because I was brought, in, brought into the faith or because people around me do so no, I feel something. This deen gives me something. It gives me a cohesive idea. It gives me an understanding of this world. It gives me an understanding of the hereafter. It gives me an understanding of what the purpose of my life is. I feel goodness. I feel light in my heart. I feel like there's a reason why I must do something. If I have to suffer, I know there's a benefit in my suffering because I'm going to be rewarded for it. That's why there's suffering in the world. For people who have no God in the, uh, in, in the picture and their auntie has to die from cancer. Why did she die for? 
Not just normal cancer, but she suffered for five years. She suffered for ten years. She suffered badly. Bedridden. Constantly going to the hospital. She suffered. What's she going to get out of this suffering if there's no hereafter? It was a miserable life. Some people suffer an entire life. That's why Islam gives an idea for suffering. Suffering is important in this world. Because without suffering, how would you understand happiness? How would you understand joy? If everything was just normal and there was no such concept of suffering, if it was just standard, then it'd be no happiness. If there was no suffering, how would we, how would we, how would we learn patience? How could we become better people? How would we learn from these things? That's why in Islam we have suffering, God is merciful. And God being merciful is completely appropriate with suffering. Because the fact that God is merciful doesn't mean He's nothing else. That's a Christian idea that God is only merciful and nothing else. A lot of people ask this question, if God is merciful, why does He allow suffering in the world? Well, that's because our God is merciful, but He also has more than a hundred other names and many more that we don't even know. We know just about a hundred and something names of Allah. 99 are mentioned in that one hadith and then there's several others in the Quran that are mentioned that are not part of the 99 and there's others. So the fact that he's a merciful one, that's there. He's compassionate, he's loving. But there's also that he's mighty, he is uh, the punishing one. He is the one from whom harm comes, like a dar. He is the one who takes revenge. He is the one who vanquishes, he is the one who overcomes. That's there as well. Those names have to be manifest. They're equal to the merciful name. Though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he created the world, there's a hadith which says that when Allah created the world, he looked at the people and he said, you know what, if I am to start dealing with you with 100% justice, if you do one bit wrong, I'm going to punish you. And if you do one good, one good deed, I'm going to reward you. Because you're so weak, if I'm going to deal with you with justice, you're not going to survive. So, he had written above the arsh, in the rahmati sabaqat ghadabi. My mercy has overcome my anger. But my anger is still there. It's not gone. Generally speaking, I will deal with you with mercy. But when I want, I can show my wrath as well, as we've seen in the world. So, it's this really limited understanding to believe that God is only merciful because once you start getting into that idea then you can't understand why there's suffering, why there's tsunamis, why people die in catastrophes. But when you understand that Allah manifests His different names in various different ways and suddenly that becomes easy. Then we know that within Islam there's a benefit in suffering because it tells you what joy is, it makes you a better person, it allows you to be patient. The other thing which is very important because the, another question, this question surrounds this issue in many different ways. Another question that comes is, why does Allah even give the ability to people to harm others? Why does Allah give the ability to somebody to harm others? Why should people have the ability to harm others? Well, the reason why people should have the ability to harm others is because it's based on free will. This world is supposed to be based on free will. Everything we do here, you've got a choice. Right? You've been told what's good and what's bad. Then Allah is going to test us. This place is a place of test. So we have a choice. We have a choice. Now in that choice, if somebody makes the wrong choice, pushes somebody over, crashes into someone, hurts somebody, murders somebody, kills somebody, the effect of that has to come about. 
the effect of that has to come out. There's going to be unhappiness. But this person will be punished for it if he doesn't make amends. If not in this world, he will definitely be punished in the hereafter if Allah so wills. Hukukul ibad, especially if you do something to somebody else, that's one of the most dangerous things that you can do because Allah will not forgive until the person forgives. To get forgiveness from that is much more difficult than get forgiveness for missing a prayer. <coughs> missing prayer is bad. It's nearly, to, uh, it's nearly, you know, it nearly gets you to kufr. Nearly. It's not kufr, but it nearly gets you to kufr. But doing something harmful to somebody else is sometimes even more dangerous because of the logistics involved in trying to get uh, amends and forgiveness for that. So the fact that we have free will in this world, right? And Allah has said, whoever wants, he can believe, whoever wants, he can disbelieve. That's why you need that whatever you do, then something happens to it within, within reason, within a certain limit. That's why suffering is allowed in this world. And this last thing is quite clear. Suffering exists. And people have been believing in God and they've reconciled these ideas for centuries. If it doesn't click to you, then just make dua that Allah make it click for you. Because at the end of the day, both of these things are easy to understand when you understand the benefits of these things. When you understand the benefits of these things. So if we go back to this idea about whether Islam is relevant or not, can you see how the media and everything we see around us, the incidents that take place and so on, can you see how it's causing people to think deen is irrelevant? It's causing deen to think, it's causing people to think that Islam is irrelevant. So now let's look at a few factors here. There are three things which when a human being has, they feel very satisfied. Do you know what they are? There are three things that if you have them, which are the most fundamental things in our life, you will be satisfied. You will think that you, you will be, become very confident and you will feel that you've got everything in this world. And the Prophet also mentioned this in one hadith. He says that whoever wakes up with three qualities, with three, with three things. Number one, with sufficient health. Alhamdulillah, in the countries that we live in, you've got a free healthcare system. Many of us enjoy, mashallah, medicines, access to healthcare. And many of us, mashallah, have sufficient nutrition within our foods to stay healthy for the most part. That's number one, health. Number two is we have security. We can walk outside. We can come to the masjid. We can go shopping. Our children can be sent to the local shops to buy something with a relative amount of safety and security. I've lived in other countries where that's not possible. They are more beautiful countries than here. They enjoy much better weather than here. They have much more natural scenery maybe. They have much more natural fruits and products, but the security is not there. A friend of mine in that country cannot send his young daughter or son to the local shops to buy something because they could be murdered, they could be killed, they could be mugged at least. We can do that here. So we have security. So you've got health and you've got security. And number three, you've got enough food as each day goes by. I've got enough food for tomorrow, I've got enough food for today, and I've got enough food for tomorrow. Most of us, alhamdulillah, have that. When you have these three things, the Prophet ﷺ said that it is as though you have been given the entire world. Because what more do you need than that? You've got safety, you've got health within your body, and you've got enough to feed yourself and your family. What more do you need to spend your day beyond that? 
Now these same three things, if you have them, they also intoxicate you if you don't use them in the right way. They make you feel confident, self-reliant, self-subsisting. They think that we don't need anything else. We forget that they come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's why if you look at prophets of the past, many times the first believers were the poor people, not the wealthy. It was the poor people that joined in first into the religions. So for example, if you look at the time the Prophet himself, this was the case that they, although he had some wealthy people, but otherwise a lot of the downtrodden ones, they, they came. If you look at Nuh alayhi salam, uh, Allah mentions in the Quran about Nuh alayhi salam that the, the wealthy, the upper class, the higher level of people, they said to Musa, uh, Nuh alayhi salam, should we believe in you? Can we believe in you? How can we believe in you when it is the downtrodden, lowly people who followed you? As though it's a club. It, this club, your club, is for the downtrodden ones. It's not for us. We need an elite club. Right? In fact, in some countries around the world, this same dichotomy exists. Right? This same dichotomy exists. For example, in one country, uh, one Muslim, I'm talking about a Muslim country, right? their students, their wealthy elite students will get positions in the universities here, in the top universities here, Imperial College, UCL, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, etc. When they come here, they are so surprised to find the local British-born Asians and Arabs practicing Islam. They find it so strange. They say where we come from, our class of people do not follow religion. Religion is for the lowly class. They're the ones who go to the masjid. They're shocked and surprised that the students here who are born in the UK, right? This is probably the same case in America to a certain degree. They, the girls are wearing hijab, right? Which is completely taboo for the, those kind of people, right? Sometimes. The guys are, you know, uh, making salat. They're looking for the place. Uh, the, the, they're looking for the prayer room at university, and they're shocked that you are our ideal. Like we've done everything. Our parents have spent huge amounts of money to get us here to where you are. You are like our ideal. We can't even, you know, we we can't even reach your ideal because we're not born in the West. And they're shocked and surprised because in their country, religion is downtrodden. Right? Religion is for the lowly, low class. Now, Alhamdulillah, in, the England, in England, I don't think we have that problem. Alhamdulillah, we don't have that kind of class system as much. And we have, mashallah, you know, adherence of our faith from all the various different <coughs> levels of uh, society. But there is no doubt that there is one thing that afflicts all of us, which is consumerism, capitalism. Right? Just, want, just because we have so much security and ability to buy things and have things. I mean, for example, I have asked this question several times and the answer has been always the same. Now, if I ask this question here, how many people here do not have Amazon Prime? Wow. This is the first time that you've got nearly 40%. Otherwise, generally, there's only 15 to 20% that don't have it. Everybody else has it. I'm not saying it's haram to have it. 
If you want next day delivery, same day delivery, be my guest. Alright? But what that does is you just have to be careful of consumerism. Now whether you're Muslim or Christian or Jew or any other religion, consumerism has taken all of us. Because we can buy things so easily. Today we live like the rich people of the past. We live like the royals of the past. We have access to products. There is no product that is banned from us, there, that there is prohibited from us. You're a normal person, you can get access. But a hundred years ago, it was only the wealthy that had access to certain things. Otherwise, we have access to whatever you want today. If you've got the money, you will buy it. Even if you don't have the money, you can get it on credit. And then you just pay for it for the rest of your life. Right. The access to things. Consumerism is something that consumes all of us. And there's nothing wrong with buying things, by the way. But there is a problem with hoarding things. And spending beyond. And to show off. And to do it to compete. If you want to buy a new pair of shoes, be my guest. But at least get rid of some of the older ones. Don't have 20 pairs of shoes or 30 pairs of shoes in the house. Right? If you want a new dress, you want a new jubba, that's fine. But get rid of some of the old ones. It's completely fine to buy a new one. As long as you're not doing it to show off. And you're not doing it because everybody else is doing it. Don't be a follower like that. Think for yourself. That's the most important thing, is to think for ourselves. So now what's happening is that consumerism is just buying things. They don't satisfy you. How many of you have the latest iPhone? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that per se. I'm just asking, be honest. Does anybody have the latest iPhone? You got the latest one. What, which one you got? What's it called? I just want to make sure you got it. The XS one. Okay. Right. Basically, if you need the next iPhone, that's fine, go and get it. But don't get it because you need to make sure you're upgraded all the time. Or you need to have the right to show. I literally got a question from one person from another country. He said, should I get the Samsung something or should I get the iPhone? I said, why is that a question for me? He said, because um, if I don't have that, then people will say I've got a backward phone. So basically, you're only getting it because people are going to say, oh, which one have you got? Which one have you got? And if you don't have the right phone, then it's, gonna, it's not going to look good. You can have the next phone. It's not a problem. But make sure you need it. That's the thing. Make sure you don't get it just because it's an upgrade. Or just because you need to be upgraded all the time. And what I was trying to say, what I was trying to show, it just doesn't, didn't go right. But generally... When a person has got the latest iPhone, most people have said that they were not as excited by it as they were with the first one they got. Right? And the, one of the reasons for that is that how much more innovative can anybody be? Right? To give you something that's going to excite you. Right? How much, how can they be so, because they, they, there's not much, that's why they call it excess. That's why they can't call it, it's just an, one letter add-on because they can't really upgrade it, but they just want to do the additional thousand pounds or whatever it is that it costs. So, the dunya doesn't give you satisfaction in the heart. Now what's happened is that there's a, one of the famous atheists of the past, uh, of the recent times, one of the five major atheists, his name is uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens. He's got a brother whose name is Peter Hitchens who's a Christian. Right? So his one brother is an atheist, like one of the main atheists of 
recent times. His brother's a Christian. He gave a talk recently. And he's talking to the Christians. He's saying that what, you, what, we've, what people have done, what the modern world has done is that they push religion out of all, nearly all areas of life. So you're not allowed to take your religion into work. Leave it at the door. Right? That's why Muslims have so much trouble that they want to go in with a topi on sometimes. Right? So they have trouble with that. Right? So maybe you don't go in with your topi on, but they want to go and pray. They want a prayer room. Women want to wear hijab. They don't want to be, you know, they, they need to be covered in a particular way. But that means you're putting your religion inside. Why, you know, think about it. Why do, why do people have so much trouble and difficulty in allowing religion in these places? It's because religion is supposed to have gone out. You know, when you had postmodernism and modernism, religion was considered downtrodden. Religion was supposed to be out of the public sphere. I've, we've had a discussion with a... Uh, with an ex-major uh, 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 you know, uh, role player in the BBC. He was either one of their journalists or one of their presenters or something. And he said basically they, he, he was Christian. So he was saying that they've actually taken out religion. To get a religious program even on the BBC, right, is so difficult. They have to do it in such a way that it's going to appeal because literally religion has been taken out from the public sphere completely. So what he's saying about Christianity is that you have taken religion out, Christianity has been driven out, and people have been given intoxication, have been intoxicated by consumerism, by merchandise, right? Um, but slowly, slowly, that is not doing anything for them. It's not giving their heart anything. You don't feel, you feel satisfied for about two or three days. When you get your Amazon order and you open the box, I don't know what they put inside. There's a special dust that they put inside. Right, so when you open it, you feel really excited. Do you feel excited when you get an Amazon box? Have you felt that excitement I'm talking about? Or is it just me that feels it? Right? Do you know what I'm talking about? When you have ordered something and you open the box and you feel good about it? Right? Have you found out what it is that they put inside? Right? They put something special inside, so it makes you really excited. But then it only lasts for a day or two. And then you have to do it again. So you have to have an order come in every second day or every, every day maybe. Because you need that fix, it's like an addiction. That's what we call consumerism. Because you can have it, you want to get it. Somebody, Umar radiallahu anhu saw somebody with a package, he said, what is this? He says, هذا لحمن This is some meat that I desired, so I purchased it. I desired it, so I purchased it. I've got the money, I see something, let me just buy it. I've got a desire, let me just buy it. They think, what's wrong with that? So Umar said to him, Kullu Everything that you desire, you just buy? That's consumerism. Just because you desire something, you buy it. You might be thinking, why are you even talking about this? Well, it's when, you, when we live for buying things and using things, that becomes a problem. That's the problem. So what Peter Hitchens is saying, he is basically saying that, Slowly, soon, people are going to be tired of consumerism, right? And they're going to be looking for some spirituality. And he's, he's worried about Christianity. He's saying that Christianity will not be able to provide a solution. Because the Christianity that is left, even in many churches, what's happening with Christianity, if they haven't sold their churches, right? And I'm only mentioning this as a warning for Muslims. We're not saying this to denigrate the Christianity, 
right? I'd rather be living among Christians than no than 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 no faith. To be honest, I mean, if you had that choice, you'd rather be living among people of some faith, at least believe in a God, right? At least the ultimate being, who those who don't deny God, than people who don't agree with God at all. That's a godless society, right? So. He says, whatever Christianity is remaining, a lot of the churches, they're doing a lot of relief work now. Because that's, they're seeing that that's the only way they're getting people to come in. Right? Because nobody's interested in praying anymore, in coming to Mass, and in coming to worship. But they, because humans have always had a compassionate side, right, of helping others, of empathy, so they, they a lot of churches have just become relief organizations. And I hope that we as Muslims don't go in that same direction. So then he says something very interesting. He's saying that all the difficult parts of Christianity, that was a burden, that was difficulty, the substance, that's all been done away with. For example, it's very clear in the, Old Test in, in, in the, in the Testament that swine is, uh, is unlawful. But that is not considered prohibited for them to eat. So I asked an expert, a friend of mine, who's an expert in Christianity, he's a, he is from that tradition. And he said, yes, although it's in there, but in the third century, the Christian council, whatever it was, had agreed to remove the dietary restrictions. We don't have any dietary restrictions. You can eat what you want as long as it's healthy or not unhealthy. Right? So anything that was difficult, that was seen as a burden against postmodernism, against individualism against basically you know acting out your women desire you take it out so you have a you have a faith but that has no substance it's just a feel-good religion and he's saying that when people are going to get tired of these things and they're going to want to turn towards some kind of spirituality Christianity will not be there it will be Islam because Islam has all of these things that's what's interesting Islam has all of these things but then he gives he gives another warning he says, but in Islam, you've got the same challenge. There are people who are trying to do away with things in Islam. I've talked to several people like this who are saying that the way to, uh, the, the way to rehabilitate Islam, the way to regain our position of uh, showing Islam is a good reason is we're going to have to take away all of these things. Does God really care if you pray five times a day or not? Does that really matter or not? It's the humanitarian work that's going to make people believe that that's become a humanitarian society then. It's not a religion. Religion is supposed to deal with every aspect of your life. But we have that, don't we? You see, the media generally gives coverage to two extremes. It gives coverage to either those who want to go out and kill everybody. You're, you, know, you, you know who I'm talking about. It gives time to them so that they can say, yes, uh, we need to... Um, it's correct to do this and that those are my brothers in faith and it was correct what they did and it's because of and they justify it. Then the opposite are those people who don't want any faith. So somebody who doesn't want to wear hijab, she's complaining that we don't really need, you know, workplaces don't discriminate against Muslim women. They won't discriminate against you because you don't wear a hijab anyway, so you just look like everybody else, for example. Somebody who doesn't want to pray at work. I don't feel, I'm a Muslim, I don't, I don't find discrimination at work. That's what they'll say. But that's because you're not insisting on praying. Right? And your, your workplace is not saying you can't pray. 
because you don't even ask to pray. The vast majority in between who are trained. So that's why you have those on the two ends in the workplace. You have those who, it's another way of looking at it. You either have those who are totally assimilated, who don't even want to tell anybody that they're Muslim. Who want to just like act like normal, completely like the mainstream, and leave religion by the door. In fact, they even change their name from Muhammad to Mo, Aslam to Sam, because they just don't want to. Because Islam is at the moment unfortunately criticized, so they don't want to be part of that discourse at all. They just want to be there. That's it. Then you've got the others who want to go to work, even with their topis on. And you know, with the full works, and they want time off for Juma. Alhamdulillah, right? But some places don't agree with that. And the problem with a lot of these people is that they go and abuse this. So if they've got time for prayer, they'll take extra time, and then they'll say, "You're discriminating against me." If somebody complains, they'll go off on Friday instead of taking the one-hour lunch break. They'll take one and a half hours, right? And that's a problem. You can't go and work somewhere and take additional time and then use the religion card, you're then going to cause your religion to be, to be criticized. So you've got the overzealous people on one side and you've got the others who change their names on the other side. This is the dichotomy that we're having. But Islam is as relevant today as it's ever been. And what the, I'll just mention two other points after this point to, to, uh, to explain that. If Peter Hitchens is saying that Christianity can no longer provide the spiritual benefit because it's become more of a feel-good kind of religion, Islam still has it, then we better be very careful about what we try to remove from Islam because it's going to become the same way. There are people who say this part of Islam is not right, it needs a reform, it needs a change, it needs a transformation, it needs an enlightenment. We've had all of these things. We've decided that this is what we want, this is what we're going to keep. Otherwise, it's going to become another feel-good religion. You're going to have several feel-good feel good religions, and that's not good enough. right? So that's number one. Number two, the Me Too movement. right? You know the Me Too movement, which is the women being harassed in workplaces and at their jobs. It started off with the media industry, the film industry, the movie industry. But I don't think there's any industry which is free of this problem. Because when you're going to have this kind of very close interaction, right? Clearly, there's going to be an issue because that's a natural reaction, unfortunately, as much as you try. That's why statistics, they show several things. One statistic shows, and you can check this up, you can do a survey on this. 80% of all of those women who have been to a concert or a club or a dance have been harassed. 80%, not 10%, not, 10%, not 1 out of 10, not 5 out of 10, but 8 out of 10, which is just about all of them. Right, just about all of them. In Sweden, two years ago, I think it was, I read about a concert that they had there where they said no men allowed, only for women. We will not allow men here until they can learn to behave themselves. They will never learn to behave themselves. That's the problem. Men, you put men into a mix like that with the music playing, with the lights, with the drink flowing, and the way people are dressed there, it's just... You're asking for you're asking for it. This is a natural. They, they've done these studies. This is not just something. I don't think anybody should be blind of this fact. They've done these studies which show this, that they've put electrodes on and they've shown men, women, and depending on what type of women, etc., they've been different reactions. 
because that's how God has made us. There's a natural reaction for the procreation of the human race. That men and women are, men and women are attracted to one another. For example, if I see the most beautiful car or the most beautiful book, most beautiful design, like that poster design, I'm going to admire it. I'm going to admire it and like, wow, it's going to give me the wow factor. But the sexual aspect of it won't be there. That only comes about for the majority of people when it's man and woman. Right? Where there's something to admire there, then there's a sexual element there. For example, one of the psychologists, non-Muslim psychologists, I remember in one of the interviews, he say, he, he saying, well, after this Me Too, Me Too movement problem, he's saying, why do, why, should, why do women wear lipstick at work? That, should be, you know, that, that shouldn't be allowed. So the person who's interviewing is saying, why should that even be a problem? Because the ideology is such that women should be allowed to wear what they want and still be in a mixed environment and men should still keep their hands away and they should. Men should be, a, men should be to themselves. Clearly, you know, men should be careful, right? No doubt about that. Harassment is completely wrong. Haram. But what he's saying is that so the person is saying, what's wrong with them wearing lipstick? He said, well, because evolutionary science will tell you that women's lips become redder as they become aroused. It be they become redder. And you are putting that on to show arousal. That is what the man subliminally is going to interpret it as. That's how they're going to interpret it. So you're already causing an issue. Now there is a bit of hypocrisy here because, and some people have actually pointed this out, the hypocrisy is that um, they say, we don't want to be harassed. Now it depends on who does the harassing in, in inverted commas. Nobody should harass anybody. It depends on who, who basically does the advancements. If it's somebody they, that they find attractive, then they won't complain about that. But if it's a person they're not attracted to, then they're going to complain about it. What's happening now? is that not just the media industry, but the political, the political system. We've had MPs and Lords and others who've had this problem, all right? Be you know, with secretaries and other, other problems. We've had it all the way to the American president. Just think of Bill Clinton, all right? You've had this everywhere in every... That's why Wall Street is very frightened because so far they've contained it. It must be happening, but they've contained it. There's not been a big kind of uh, uh, an issue so far. So that's why recently some of you may have read this that the the Bloomberg the Bloomberg uh, media outlet who generally deals with financial issues right I mean it's by the ex mayor of uh, New York Bloomberg so they have written this amazing article now listen to what they're saying this is the guidance that finance finance executives Wall Street executives are giving to the people it's a very male dominated society with women who are trying to climb up the ladder inside. These are the suggestions, right? Now remember, Islam is supposed to be irrelevant, according to the accusation. They're saying that from now on, if you go on a business trip, make sure that you don't book your seats together. If you're going with a female colleague, make sure that your seats are not booked together. They're, they're on different rows. When you, when you have a hotel, forget about having rooms on, not next to each other. Make sure they're on different floors. Like, you know, one is you can get a room that is next door to each other, but there's a door like this that you can access one another. Not even on the same floor, have it on another room, have it on another floor. Number three, don't have meals, don't 
basically take women less than 35 years of age to dinner, right? In fact, the vice president of America, the current vice president, uh, vice president of America, doesn't even have meals with anybody, any woman, but his wife. And there was major criticism on him. I remember one talk show dealing with that. Like, what's the problem with that? Right. That's number three. Number four, when you have a meeting with women, then make sure that there's a door open or it's a big window. Don't be alone with women. Now, do you recognize some of this advice? This is the advice that we've been giving. I, can, I could probably show you recordings of this. That this is the advice I have been given personally for the last 25 years. To people who are in the workplace, who are in a mixed environment. Okay, if you are there, well, make sure you don't, you're not alone with a woman. You're not alone with this and so on. So we've been saying this is what Islam says. They're finding this is a solution, but nobody's willing to say, but that's what Islam says as well. And make it a big deal. That these are Islamic ideals that they've been saying for hundreds of years that you shouldn't be doing these things. In fact, from the Washington Post, the journalist in there, I believe it was a she, she said that when she spoke to, I think it was her physical therapist or somebody, physical therapist said that I am now frightened, I'm afraid of hugging my patients. Well, he should be, he shouldn't have been hugging them from the first place. If they're, meaning if they're, if they're women, he shouldn't be doing that in the first place. Because now you could be, you could immediately a claim is going to come upon you. But now there's a downside that they're worried about. Because in Wall Street, in the, finance, uh, in the financial sector, there's not enough women at the top of the, of the game. And for them to reach up the ladder, they need male um, mentors. And very few males are now willing to take the risk because you'd get a, a case against you. So they're saying that this is going to affect women negatively. Well, you can't have it this way, you can't have it this way, it's a really tough game. You put it all together and you let it be free, there's going to be harassment, as the world has shown. And if you don't, then women can't rise. What's going on there? Right. Islam has been telling these same things that you, you, you need barriers, you need certain uh, limits. That's number two. And number three is something very simple. Our David Cameron, our previous Prime Minister, right? He's, he made an announcement that he wants London to be the hub of Islamic finance. The hub of Islamic finance. Why? Because after 2008 and the financial crash, the most stable system that can endure itself is the Islamic finance system. Right? He wants London to be there because you need money. London, one of the reasons why it's so, such a great city is because the finance department is very important. The, the, your, your canary wharf and so on. That's why New York, London, very important sectors. For a country to be seen in this modern world, it's all about economics. It's all about how much money is going, coming through it, right? And he wants Islamic finance to be here. But nobody takes all of these points and say, look, Islam has a lot of answers. That's not said in a mainstream way. Do you understand what this whole discussion has been about? That the charge is that Islam is irrelevant. Islam is backwards. But the last 10 years has shown us how both from Peter Hitchens about the Christianity, about materialism and somebody wanting spirituality is only Islam that's left, that gives you a kind of viable religion to work with. Number two, the Islamic finance department. Number three, in the whole interaction of genders. Right? That's... Nobody's out there and that's the difficulty. 
that most people who are listening to the abuse against Islam, they don't hear the positives and they're not willing to think either. They're not willing to think either. They just listen to it and then it creates this apathy. If it doesn't create outward, outright denial of God, it creates definitely an apathy. That's why majority of people who want to have nothing to do with the faith, who don't care, are, 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 are suffering apathy, which means indifference. Look, I've got my money, I've got my house, I can buy what I want. Why do I need a God? Why do I need to pray? Why do I need to worry about these things? Why is that relevant? It's relevant because there's a world to come. This is only a testing ground. There is a hereafter. We're all going to die. Nobody lives forever. We're all going to die. And when we die, where do we go? Is the question that arises. And there's a, Islam gives you that idea, a plausible idea, that if you take and you work for, you have to have certain restrictions in the world. Clearly, you have to have certain restrictions in the world. But it allows you to prosper. And once you, most people, they're worried about that if they become properly Muslim, right, properly practicing, it's going to do away with their fun. It's going to do away with their joy. They won't enjoy their life. That's just because they haven't tasted it. I mean, those of you who feel you're practicing, are you guys boring? Are you guys have, have no happiness in this world? It's ridiculous. I enjoy my life. I think I'm practicing. I try to be practicing. I've had this said to me, if you don't do this, you won't be able to live in this country. When I pointed something out, the brother, this is unlawful. He was selling something which was unlawful. I said, brother, he says, if you want to do business in this country, you're going to have to do this. There are so many others doing halal business. Shaitan's deception. Shaitan creates a deception in your mind that this is what it is. It's just like that person who feels that when they found the right wife or husband to marry and they can't get married to them, Right, because their parents won't agree or whatever. When you get emotionally attached to something, you think that they are your answer to everything. That there will be nothing else that will replace that for you. This is the same kind of emotional attachment we're talking about. Allah promises in the Quran, in many places, He promises contentment and satisfaction. With the dhikr of Allah. Allah bi dhikri You need some dhikr of Allah in your heart to have satisfaction. Otherwise, there is no satisfaction. You're just constantly running after a world and everybody knows at the end of the day, that's just a mouse running around and he doesn't know where the end is. It's on a wheel, right? It's just a, basically a, 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 a race for, where, with, with no end. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for tawfiq. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us yaqeen. Allah says that you must seek assistance in prayer and in patience. When you feel that I can't do what others are doing, why should I be doing this when others don't have to do it? This is where the patience, it requires faith. It requires faith in the unseen. But inshallah, the reward of that will be great. This is the crux, I think, of stability in this world, of steadfastness in this world. In, among all of this crazy stuff, use it to your benefit. But don't do it because it's the thing to do. Don't do it because everybody else is doing it. I mean, I used to live in a place where, mashallah, the husbands were very wealthy. Not live there, I, I visited. Husbands were very wealthy. Doctors, engineers and so on. The wives were stay-at-home women. But 
there, there, a trend began that it's a place where you can have a lot of cars, a lot of space, right? Not like England. Right? So one of the guys bought his wife a, a Mercedes SUV because it's safe. They're gonna, the wife is going to take the ch children to school, safe, etc., etc. SUVs were supposed to be safe, right? So the next person, her friend, she got her husband to buy one. Now all the women in the area are asking their husbands to buy him the same thing. This is not a women issue, I'm telling you this. This is just an example of that. Don't do things because others are doing it. Do it because you want to do it. You need it. Right? And then make sure you don't hoard. And you thank Allah. Allah wants to be thanked. And if you thank, He'll only give you more. So you thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for what He has given us. We don't do israf and we don't overdo it. And we are satisfied with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And inshallah, Allah says, you will remain elevated as long as you are true believers. That is the verse that I began with. You will remain elevated as long as you are truly believers. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that. And that has been the case in the past. We have had so many ups and downs in the past. Unfortunately, at this point, it's in a bit of a low phase. People are looking for the Mahdi. But believe me, we've had the lows before. We've gone down before, but it's come back up. That's why I'm going to suggest two books to you, right, which I have found to be extremely beneficial. Right, one is this book, which is called Saviors of Islamic Spirit, right, written by Sheikh Abul Hassan Ali Nadwi, one of our greatest thinkers of these last, you know, last century. Right, amazing individual. This first volume of this book, if you can't read the whole four, four volumes, but the first volume, it deals with the first six or seven centuries of Islam, showing you the ups and downs. It shows you how the challenges came to such a degree. Sometimes, I mean, it talks about the Tartars. Many of our historians have written that the Tartars, one of the worst calamities that befell not just the Muslim world, but the world itself. The way they went through and just ravaged and destroyed and plundered and pillaged and literally annihilated huge amounts of population in Baghdad alone, they killed a million people. You think the recent shock and awe campaigns were bad in Baghdad? It is bad. I mean, not doubt because the Sunnis are really suffering, especially there. Right? But they killed a million, a million people in Baghdad alone. And the, 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 the ruler, the, the Abbasid Khalif, was rolled up in a, in a, in a, in a rug and, and beaten to death. Right? You have had Salahuddin Ayyubi's time, when Jerusalem, just before him, Nearly an entire century, over 90, 92 or something years, there was no Islam in Masjid Al-Aqsa. There was no Adhan, there was a cross on top of the, uh, the Qubbat Al-Sakhra. Place was used as a palace and stables. There was no Adhan, no prayer, no people were killed. We have it bad right now, but that was worse. When you read this book, I read it when I was about 20. I wish I'd read it when I was 14 or 15, because it would have given me perspective it gives you a lot of thought that look it's not the end of times we've had problems before and it gives us solutions and it gives us hope of how allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has brought numerous individuals to bring back the ummah up may allah accept us for some contribution to his deen that's the first book the other book which is very relevant for today about islam in the modern age Right, and it's an amazing book. I read the whole book myself. Mufti Taki Usmani read the whole book and gave suggestions and the author took them 
and you know update his book accordingly is this book called a thinking person's uh, guide to Islam is by Prince Ghazi now he, he he's a prince don't you know jump to judgments about that uh, he has two PhDs he's a scholar in his own right he's got two PhDs one from Azhar and one from Princeton and this is one of the most amazing books that I have read because it gives you an understanding of what Islam is today da'wah is very important we are constantly being asked about Islam because Islam is in the media all right and sometimes we just don't have the right answers because we haven't understood our own Islam for ourselves the philosophy of Islam we haven't understood it most tell me just think about it how much Islam have you studied each one of us generally this is what most people will study the amount of Islam that is taught to us by our parents growing up brother uh, Bacha don't do this or you know kid don't do this or boy don't do this or whatever right do this do this we don't do it because of this the you know whatever we assimilate through this informal teaching in the house number one number two if you've been to a maktab an Islamic school Islamic after school whatever the teachers taught you there right and number three if you've been lucky enough to take courses then you're mashallah you're very that's wonderful but most of us haven't taken courses these are the two places we've learned Islam from only. We haven't understood it in a contemporary situation unless you've taken relevant courses for that, you've thought about it, or you've read the right thing. But we, every day we read the media, we're bombarded with this stuff on our WhatsApps and so on. So we're not getting the proper information. That's why, inshallah, I believe that these two books are very relevant for these current times. One is to give you satisfaction, the other one is to give us understanding. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from these authors and to bless them as well and to give us keep us guided keep us guided and allahumma rabbana la tuzigh qulubana ba'da idh hadaytana wa hab lana min ladunka rahma innaka antal wahhab is one of the wonderful duas and his numerous duas like that allahumma inni a'udhu bika min ash-shakki fil haqqi ba'da al-yaqeen oh allah i ask you to uh, uh, i ask you refuge uh, from doubt with regards the truth after you gave me conviction because that's very dangerous so i will end it here